When Jesus saw faith in people, it really excited him. And so each part of that series was looking at things that grow our faith. And in there, we talked about generosity. We talked about how we approach money impacts our faith. That, that the way we approach money is like a thermometer, right? A thermometer reads the temperature of something. And, and money is a thermometer of our faith. It tells you how much you trust the Lord when you trust him with your dough. Um, and then we also said that money is a thermostat of faith, that if you want to increase the temperature of your faith, you need to be more generous with how you give and what you do. And so we challenged you in that sermon to do uh, what we call the 90-day tithe challenge. And that basically meant that we invited those of you who do, didn't currently uh, give the first percentage of your income to the Lord to begin to do that, to trust that God could do more with your 90 with. with 90% than you could do with 100%, that kind of a thing. And a bunch of you responded to that, and some of you even increased uh, what you did. And so there were 85 households in our church that took that challenge, which I think in and of itself is worth celebrating. Um, and we're on the back end of the 90 days, so sometimes we do a big push like that, and then you don't ever really hear what happened. And so I wanted to just celebrate some of, of what God did. And, and what I told you in that sermon was that that was not about our need for money. Uh, God has continued to provide it, and, and you have, I mean, your giving generously does provide what we need, and, and we completely appreciate your generosity. But, but doing the 98 tithe challenge wasn't to get more. It wasn't to try to see how much can we squeeze out of everybody. It's a deep conviction that I have that how you handle money impacts your spiritual growth. And so a bunch of you took that challenge, and I wanted to just share a couple stories that some people wrote in about how God worked in it. And so I'm not including names. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, but these are real stories. I didn't make these up. And so um, let me just share a couple with you. Here's, here's what one person said. They wrote in, being part of the tithing challenge was a big step for me. Prior to this event, I would at best classify myself as a God tipper, to use your breakdowns. That was part of that sermon. My wife was a regular contributor, but I tended to sit back. I think this more likely stems from my history with organized religions who I often saw as more concerned with getting money from their, their parishioners than strengthening their relationship with God. Having been part of the tithing challenge, I now find myself closer to the church, a greater part of the community, and growing in my relationship with the Lord. So isn't that cool? Um, here's another story. Uh, someone else wrote in. She said, God has worked in amazing ways since I accepted this challenge. We've received unexpected money since I first gave. That's a nice thing. Um, but, but it's more than that. Here's what she says. I have also started a healthy eating program that came my way after asking God for something to help me get in better shape, allowing me to be better at my job and be a better mother and wife. It feels really good to give back financially and has created less stress for me personally. And I love that because in Malachi 3, one of the passages we looked at, God says, if you'll test me and trust me with your money, I'll pour out blessing for you. And that doesn't always mean that God will pour out money. It just often means there'll be other kinds of blessing. And that story highlights that. Here's a third, kind of a last story to celebrate. Um, this person writes, we prayed about our commitment and decided that we would step out in faith and up our tithe to 15% during the 90-day challenge. It was a little stressful for me as I'm on commission but we placed our trust in God to provide. Within a couple of days, we had an unexpected household expense come up, and we didn't have all the funds available to handle it. And we warned everybody, hey, listen, God, you know, God's going to allow something that's going to test your, your resolve here. Continues, then God stepped in. I got a call that due to a bank error, I was to be paid a second time for something that happened over a year ago. These were funds that I had done nothing to earn. When we received the check, deducted for our tithe, and then paid all the bills for our unexpected expense, we were only out of pocket $4.62. <laughs> I 
He is awesome. And so I just wanted to, I just wanted to celebrate that and, uh, and thank you. Um, you're, the, the, the money that you give generously to our church and outside of our church, God uses it in powerful ways. People's lives are changing, and those are just a couple examples of, of how that works. Now, the second thing I want to share um, is kind of flows a little bit out of that idea that, that your generosity is not just impacting kind of the adults in the church, but it's also filtering in. Uh, and this culture of generosity is, is something that our kids are experiencing. And so this past week, we had vacation Bible school here. We had 150 kids, a uh, number of them that, that don't attend our church. And uh, Mark, who uh, leads our, our kids' ministry and, and was in charge of VBS, they came up with a great idea for the missions part of Vacation Bible School. They, we've got this relationship with House of Refuge, who's nearby, and a, a number of um, transitional homeless housing community-type uh, families live there. And so um, the idea was that they wanted to get kids to give cereal so that the kids of House of Refuge could have breakfast all summer instead of being able to get it through school. And so Mark challenged each of the kids to give at least three boxes, uh, some to give more, and then if they got to 500 boxes then, of cereal, then they would be able to give breakfast to the kids at House of Refuge all summer, and Mark would shave his head into a mohawk, and, uh, and Danny Indy would you know, color hair purple and all sorts of interesting incentives. And so the kids got real fired up. Like I got home Monday and asked Abby, hey, how was VBS today? And she, she, that was the first thing she wanted to tell me about was we're doing this thing. And she was so excited. And, and I want to go to the store and, and get some cereal. And I said, okay, well, are you going to pay for it? <laughs> and she gave me a look like, what? And I said, well, honey, listen, Mark challenged you. To give. He didn't challenge me and mommy. So do you want to do that? And she thought about it and went, yeah, I want to do that. And so, so I, and I'm sure a bunch of you had similar conversations with your kids about that. And the kids of our church, when it was all said and done, gave 579 boxes of cereal. And uh, it was all loaded up in here on Friday night. And I guess she could barely like drive back to the, you know, her van back because it was all filled with cereal. But I just love that, that idea that the kids catch what we do, uh, not just what we say. And uh, that was really worth celebrating. So, okay, that, that was the second thing. Now, the third thing to celebrate and really pray for is related to student ministry. This upcoming weekend is our camp for junior high and high school. Uh, they're, they're, it's called Resolve. That's why I'm wearing the Resolved t-shirt. They gave me a camp t-shirt. Some of you are going, I didn't think he could dress down anymore, and now he's wearing a t-shirt. And uh, I really, it's a lot more comfortable, honestly. If we need more camps for more T-shirts, I could just get the whole summer. It'd be terrific. But uh, they're going up to Payson, junior high and high school students, this next weekend. Uh, Sean Myers, who's a pastoral resident within Redemption at, at our Arcadia congregation, is going to preach. And here's what I know, having been part of camps and having sp uh, spoken at them and attended and just all that sort of stuff. When, when anybody, but especially when students get away, and they get away from the electronics and away from Instagram and away from, you know, all that stuff. And they have an opportunity to focus on the Lord and to hear from him and to have adult mentors invest in their lives and care for them and answer questions and pray for them. When that happens, God works powerfully. And so I want to take a moment here together uh, before we turn our attention to the scripture. And I want to ask us to pray and to pray that God would work in a powerful way in the lives of those students uh, this upcoming week. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that um, 
you have such a heart for young people. Um, Thank you specifically that the Scripture tells us that children are a blessing and that Jesus was adamant about having children come to him. And God, we're excited when we see the faith of young people uh, in their generosity. And and God, we're also excited about what you're going to do at this camp this next week for our junior high and high school students. God, we know some of the uh, kids going there... um, are exploring what it is to have a relationship with you, maybe even think they have a relationship with you, and we pray that you would break through in a powerful way. God, that the ones that don't know you would get to know you and not just know about you, but have an experience of knowing Christ that is so filling them with joy and life and passion that it would transform the whole direction of their lives. God, we pray for those that do know you and pray that their faith would be stirred and uh, that it would be grown. God, thank you for the staff, the mentors, and the adults that are going to be there to love on those kids and support and strengthen them. We pray for Sean that as he preaches, you'd give him passion and clarity and that you would use him to proclaim your word. So we thank you for that. We look forward to what you'll do, and we praise you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. All right. That's it for updates. Uh, Let's go to the scripture. So grab your Bible. And uh, open it up to Romans chapter 2. We're going to read verses 17 through 24. Uh, That's page 940 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Let's stand together as I read this and you can follow along. Uh, Again, that's Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Page 940 of your black hardcover Bible. And as we read, remember... We're reading God's word. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's God's word. You may be seated. The title of today's uh, sermon is Don't Be a Hypocrite, and uh, the reason for that is that there are a few things that Jesus goes after harder than hypocrisy, and there are a few things that we encounter in our lives when it comes to encountering religious people that we dislike more than hypocrisy, and yet we're all tempted to it. Heard the story of a, a family who had heard a great sermon at church about how they should love their neighbors and share the gospel and, and, and really want to spread the good news about Jesus to those around them. And they said, okay, we got to do something about that. And so they invited their neighbors over for dinner the next Friday. And uh, they said, yeah, we, we want to be a really great example. We want to show them, you know, what it is to be, to be Christian. And, and so they, they had them over for dinner, and the table's set, and the house is clean, and everything looks nice. And, and they sit down to have the meal. And, and the mom says to little Johnny, who's five years old, says, hey, uh, Johnny, why don't, you, uh, why don't you say grace? Johnny's kind of a shy kid, and he gets a little nervous, and uh, he's not sure what to do. And, and so mom says, honey, it's okay. Just, just, just pray just say what daddy said this morning at breakfast. And he says, oh God, I can't believe these awful people are coming over for dinner tonight. 
<laughs> right? Can you just imagine something like that happening, right? We want to make a big difference. We want to make a big impact. We got to love our neighbors. But in our hearts and in the private moments, it's like, are these people really coming over tonight? It's hypocrisy. And it's that kind of hypocrisy that's prevalent enough in the world and in the Christian world that it drives people away. There are all kinds of people. Maybe you're one of them. If you're here and you would not consider yourself a religious person, maybe you're interested in kind of Jesus, you'd be among many who would say, you know, I don't have a big problem with God. I don't really have a big, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I kind of think he's pretty interesting. But I really don't like his people. They're hypocrites. I saw a bumper sticker that said something to the effect of, it's a good thing Jesus loves you because everyone else thinks you're a jerk. <laughs> and I think that sentiment is, is out there. And to some degree, if we're honest, it's fair. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to begin to attack here in Romans chapter We're studying through this book of the Bible, through Romans. We'll take uh, 60 or 70 weeks to do so. And uh, Paul is going to get to some really great stuff. He's going to tell us that we can be made right with God. He's going to tell us that we can have peace with God. He can tell us that we can have eternal life from God. He's going to tell us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's going to tell us that life or death, nothing can separate us from his love. That we can have a promise that everything in our lives is working out for our good if we love Christ. He's going to tell us all of that, but before he tells us that in this book of Romans, he's trying to convince us to believe that we need it. He's trying to convince us that we're sinners. See, if you don't believe that you're a sinner, that you've rebelled against God, that you have dishonored God by the things you've done and the things you've thought and the things you've said, if you don't believe that, then there's no real need for you to trust in Christ. And all the benefits that come from being part of God's family, don't, you don't feel like you need them. And so Paul is, is elaborately trying to convince us, you're a sinner. If, if you don't turn away from this, you're in danger. You're under God's wrath. You need his help. He made that case in chapter 1. He was talking about people who were Gentiles, uh, people that were not Jews, weren't part, didn't have the religious law, didn't have the religious system, just kind of you know, people out there in the world. And, and he makes the case that they're dishonoring God because they know enough about God to at least trust him a little bit, and they don't even do that. And, 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 there, and he lists all kinds of immorality, all kinds of sin in chapter 1. Well, then he gets to chapter 2, and the folks in chapter 2 kind of go, man, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like those people. And in chapter 2, he's addressing people who are moral, people who know the right thing to do, people not like one of them. People like me. When I was a kid, um, I was, I'm an only child, and both my parents were school teachers. And so all I heard growing up was about all the awful kids that they taught. Right? I mean, I have all kinds of things. I can't name certain children if we ever have more kids because, like, my parents had a kid with that name, and they just are like, you are never allowed to name your kid that. Um, and so I just would hear those stories. And so... All of that kind of shaped up in me this, this pride. I don't want to be like one of those bad kids. I'm a good kid. I don't, I don't drink and swear and do all the stuff that they do. That's kind of how I thought. And Paul's coming after people like me. Maybe people like you. 
saying, you're, you're in trouble too, buddy. Because there's a hypocrisy in your heart. There are things in your life that are inconsistent with what you say. And Paul is going to begin to address that. Specifically, who he's addressing in this particular context are Jews. Jewish people uh, who had the Word of God, who had synagogue and temple and made sacrifices and knew the law and had the covenant of circumcision and had all this stuff, and that's who he's addressing. You see in the first part of verse 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew. And so he's going to go after these people, these Jewish religious people who think they have a relationship with God on the basis of their status, but in fact, he's going to say, you don't. And so he's going to test them. And the scripture tells us to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. You know, a religious hypocrite and a true Christian often look the same. They pray, they both pray, they both give, they both serve, they both read the Bible, they both come to church. But they do it for totally different reasons. And Paul's going to zero in on some of that. And so my invitation for you today is to hear this message, not in a way that we often are inclined to hear a message, which is to say, boy, I wish so-and-so was here. But to instead say, God, what do I need to hear? We're going to look at today, Paul gives us in this passage, four signs of religious hypocrisy. Four signs of hypocrisy. And if we're prone to hypocrisy at all, then we often mean it means we can't see it. Which means we think we see it in other people, we can't see it in us. And so I want to take a moment and just pray and ask God to give us um, some self awareness here by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that by Your Spirit you would illuminate this text and you would um, search our hearts. And God, any ways that, um, that we dishonor You with our hypocrisy, we pray that You would reveal that to us and then point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. All right, four signs of religious hypocrisy uh, that Paul gives us here. Uh, Here's the first one, is a feeling of moral superiority. A feeling of moral superiority. Might be explicit. You might say out loud, boy, I'm not glad I'm not like them. But oftentimes it's subtle and it's, it's sort of just kind of below the surface. But the first sign of religious hypocrisy is a feeling of moral superiority. This is in verses 17 through 20. Here's what he says. But if you call yourself a Jew... What he's going to do in this, in this section, he, he's going to point out all these things that these Jewish people took pride in, these religious people took pride in. This is who they were. This is their identity. You call yourself a Jew, so they take pride in their, their ethnic identity, their nationality. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, they're going, we've got the word of God. We've got it. That's what we need. We got it. So they're, they're proud of that. And boast in God. The, the, the NIV translates this, and, and brag about your relationship with God. So th- there, there's a kind of boasting in God that's like, God is my only hope. I, I can do nothing without him. That's not the kind of boasting in God he's talking about. He's talking about the guy that's like, boy, I'm glad God's on my team. Right? You ever pray for your favorite sports team to win? You're like, God, I, I know you're a Bronco fan. Come on, God. You got it, right? And, and then... He lets a defensive back misplay it. I guess someone on the Ravens was praying harder, but 
you know, but, but this kind of this, God's on our side. We're, I brag about my relationship with him. So you're proud of your heritage. You, you have the word of God. You brag about, you, you know, you're part of his chosen people. Verse 18, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. This means these people had this ethical knowledge. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. They knew the things that were better, the things that, that, were, that were wrong to do. They could make these decisions. They were educated in the law, instructed from the law. Verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These are people who are like, God, you are so lucky to have me on your team. God, I'm, a, I'm one of the good guys. I'm wearing a white hat. Whew, God, you're lucky. That's the attitude, a sense of moral superiority. See, that's the kind of people who would hear chapter 1 and would go, Paul, man, you're blowing all this out of proportion. Paul, don't you understand? We're Jews. We're part of the chosen people. And, and, and what we're going to look at here this week and next week are kind of these two things that were part of being God's covenant people. Right? God had made a covenant with the Jews that they were, in fact, his chosen people. And he gave them the law to live by, that they could obey that law and, and flourish in obedience to God's word. So they gave him the law, and that's what Paul's going to talk about a little bit today. And then they also would boast in the idea of circumcision, this sign of the covenant of God's people. We'll look at that next week. But they would go, this, all this sin stuff doesn't apply to us. We're okay. This feeling of moral superiority. Christians can be this way, or so-called Christians, religious people. Often people's uh, annoyance at religious people. Some of it is they don't like Jesus sometimes. But a lot of it is sometimes Christians are just proud and arrogant and act like they're superior. Right? You can almost hear Paul saying, but if you call yourself a born-again Christian and rely on the fact that you went forward at a crusade and you've been baptized and you know all the right things to do, and you say heck instead of hell, and you don't watch rated R movies, you do all that, but, but. So Christians, so-called Christians can be this way. We can have a feeling of moral superiority, and Paul confronts it, says that's a problem. Here's the second sign of religious hypocrisy. Second sign is a theoretical-only approach to Scripture. Theoretical only. Uh, here's what he says in verse 21. Right? He said, you're the instructor. You have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, these people's approach to Scripture was to say, in theory, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what you're supposed to do. But for me, it's a little different. So it's a theoretical knowledge of Scripture, not a personal and practical knowledge of Scripture. Do you get that idea? I, I know what the Bible says, and it's really important that you do it, but not me. Do what I say, not what I do. That kind of approach. This is, I've found to be one of the unique challenges for me personally of, of ministry. 
I was so excited when I first got into pastoral full-time ministry because it was like, I get to study God's Word all day. I mean, I just, that blows me away. And not that I actually get to study God's Word all day because there's other stuff to do. Um, but, but there are these moments where I'm, where I'm writing something or I'm reading something, and I'm just going, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. It's incredible. And I sort of thought that, you know, being in full-time ministry would just sort of be this wonderful unbroken season of great closeness to God. But here's what I found out. There's a great temptation in ministry. And it's a temptation that's actually increased over the last few years as I've started preaching and teaching more regularly. So I felt it a little at first, and it just grows more and more and more as a temptation. And the temptation is to be a dispenser of truth without applying it to my life. I don't know if you know this, but Sundays happen with incredible regularity. Right? I mean, they just, every seven days, it's back again, you know? Like, I'll I'll finish today, and I'll start, you know, I've already started thinking about and preparing next week's sermon. And and there's sort of this this thing where if, if I'm not careful, I can begin to just sort of go, well, here's, here's what they need. Here's what they need. And never go, here's what I need. And so God knows that this is a temptation. And so one of the verses that I use as a way to constantly remind myself of this is uh, in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And I love that order. Right? Ezra set his heart to study God's word and then to do it, to practice it. He needed it himself and then to teach it. Because the temptation is to go, well, I heard that. Boy, they need it. I read that. They better have that. And never go, here's what I need. And here's what I know. It's not just a temptation for someone in ministry. It's a temptation for you. Every time you hear a sermon... Every time you read a book, every time you read the Bible, how many times do you, especially now that, that sharing, right, you can, right, if you're reading something on your device, it's so easy to share it with people. You can get into this mindset where everything becomes, oh, I got to share that. Well, hey, 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 great, share it. But before you share it, get it in you a little bit first. Otherwise, you're possibly a hypocrite. This is good for you. Good advice for you. Not for me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, what is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, that is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you, otherwise it can be very dangerous. There's a sense in which the more you know of it, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't quite say this, but he kind of implies that if you're going to read the scripture without any intention of applying it to yourself, you almost might be better off not reading it. Now, I I wouldn't do that. I would say, God, change my heart and help me read it. But you get this, a hypocrite and a genuine Christian 
both read the Bible, but they do it for totally different reasons, and it leads to totally different results. Here's the third sign of religious hypocrisy, is a private double life. A private double life. You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You say you hate and abhor idols, well, do you rob temples? It's interesting here, Paul looks at three specific things, all of which are pretty bold acts of sin, right? Stealing, committing adultery, robbing temples. You may go, robbing temples, I don't even, I don't really know what that is. Stealing makes sense, committing adultery. What's robbing temples? Well, there's some debate among commentators about what this means. Some think that Paul is kind of using that as sort of a euphemism, talking about allowing idolatry to be at root in your heart, you know, loving other things more than God, that that may be what he's talking about. But there's some historical accounts that lead me to believe that, that what this is talking about is Right. Remember, Paul is writing to, to Jews here in Rome. So they're in Roman culture, surrounded by pagans, pagan gods, lots of temples, lots of idols. And they would say, we hate idolatry. It's unclean. It's wrong. It's sin. But, but there's some historical accounts of people that would break into temples and take some of the artifacts and then sell them. Probably even thinking, I'm doing God a favor by getting rid of this stuff. But rather than just throwing it away, I'm going to make some money off of it. And, and how common it was, we don't know. Was that something everybody was struggling with? Probably not. But Paul's saying sometimes the people that are most vocal about doing the right thing are really nurturing a secret, private, double life. That's, in fact, what real hypocrisy is. See, listen, hypocrisy is not just saying one thing and then doing the opposite. Everybody does that to some degree, right? We all do that. What hypocrisy is, is saying one thing, doing the opposite, and pretending you didn't. That's what hypocrisy is. It's not necessarily about doing the wrong thing, because we all do the wrong thing, right? Everybody at some point does something that they say, oh, that's wrong, I shouldn't do that, right? I lost my temper, I, I, oh, I, I went back for that fourth piece of cake. You know, whatever it was. I, I shouldn't do that. Oh, I did it. Okay, that, that in itself just makes you a sinner, right? Which has its own problems. But, but that doesn't make you a hypocrite. What makes you a hypocrite is pretending that it doesn't affect you. That's the problem. It's, it's, it's an act. It's playing to the crowd. In fact, that's what the word hypocrite means. It, it comes from Greek drama. And in Greek drama, there was a character called the hypocrite. And the hypocrite would wear a mask. And the mask on one side was a smiley face, and on the other side was a frowny face. And depending on sort of the mood of the particular moment, the hypocrite would turn and look happy or look sad. It's where we get the idea of being two-faced. That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy isn't just sinning. Hypocrisy is pretending you don't and playing to the crowd. That's what hypocrisy is about. And that's what Paul is saying these people are guilty of. It's great you know the law. It's great that you got God's word. Awesome. But quit pretending that you're something you're not. Are you a pretender? Or is what we see what we get? 
right? I, I'm not big into, you know, computer programming, and there's, we got some guys, you know, we got some guys in our church that are like, you know, Thomas Bates, and some of you guys are just whizzes when it comes to programming and coding and different stuff like that. People like me, if I'm going to use internet, I need the feature, what you see is what you get, right? If you, if you, it's got, like, it's the W-Y-S, W-Y-G, right? It's that little acronym. Like, if I'm ever going to do something, I got to have that, which means what I type on the screen is how it's going to look on the screen. Otherwise, I have no chance, because I need what you see is what you get. You know what God's looking for? What you see is what you get. That's what he's after. How do you get there? What's the remedy? Well, the remedy, Paul's going to get to in a little bit. And what Paul's going to get to in chapter 3 is he's going to say the remedy is to admit that you're not righteous, to admit that you're not good, to admit that you are far from God, and then to turn your hope to Jesus. And if you will admit that before Jesus, then you will be cleansed in such a way and set free in such a way that you, rather than having to play to the crowd, can live for an audience of one. Rather than having to pretend you're something you're not, you'll have the humility to say, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And instead of pretending, you can be the real you. What you see is what you get. Isn't that what you long to be? Is it, when all of us say we love authenticity, we love sincerity, isn't that what we want? Don't you want to be in private who you are in public? If you play to the crowd... If your focus is on your reputation and your honor, you'll never do it. But if you can humble yourself and say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I need the, the kind of grace that Jesus offers, where even at my worst, he still accepts me, then you can have the freedom to be who you are. I love Psalm chapter 101, verses 1 through 4. It says this, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. And I love the end of verse 2 here. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Don't you love that? Within my house. Not when I'm at church, though I hope I have integrity there too. Not just at work. At my house. When, When that's who I really am. My private moments. He continues, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Isn't that the desire of God's people? Yet how often we settle to just play to the crowd. So the fourth mark of hypocrisy Paul tells us in verses 23 and 24 is this, caring more about your reputation than God's. I think that's really the root of this. Where does this hypocrisy come from? Where does this pride come from? Where does this superiority, this sense of, well, I don't don't need to apply this. It's really for other people. Where does that come from? It comes from this. At the root of this is, is whose attention you're after. Who are you trying to please? Look at how Paul describes it in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
You're busy protecting your name, your reputation, right? That's what he means when he says name. The name of God is the idea of the reputation of God, the, the fame of God, the renown of God. It's not just saying God's, like, the letters of God's name. It's saying his reputation. And, and what he's saying here is when you, when you act this way, when you're morally superior, but, but secretly you're nurturing this private life and you don't need that, this doesn't apply to you, what you care about is the crowd, pleasing the crowd to protect your reputation, even though what it's doing is it's soiling God's reputation. But you don't care as long as you look good. Part of why I, I'm so convinced this is the root of this is, is because in, in a couple verses, in the part we'll look at next week, in verse 29, he talks about this same idea. Look at verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The true believer lives for the praise of God, not the praise of man. The true believer has been set free from needing the praise of man, knows that that's just another form of idolatry, and instead is saying, God, I'm living for you. That's what this is. It's where that comes from. What do you love? Whose reputation do you care about? Yours or God's? Right? The way you know this is how often you ask yourself the question, either out loud or just in your head, what did they think? How did that look? What did they say? Do they notice me? How did I come across? The more you ask those questions, the more it reveals that what you care about is the praise of man and not the praise of God. What's the remedy for this? Well, as we've said already, part of the remedy is to get your eyes uh, on to the fact that you're a sinner, to admit your sin, to, to not quit you know, to, to quit dodging it, to quit deflecting it, to quit blaming someone else, to quit minimizing it, and instead to say, yes, okay, Paul, I agree, I'm a sinner, I need help. But the other part of it, the other way you get your eyes off of the praise of man and onto God is to look at what God has done for you, to look at, at what Christ has accomplished for you. And if you focus your eyes there, then your love becomes about his reputation. You realize his greatness, and you want to pursue that instead of your own. I've uh, been rereading a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and it's an old book um, that is really about the ways that Satan, Satan's devices, Satan's way of tempting us, and then how to overcome that. And there's this great passage in there where Thomas Brooks, it, it kind, of a, kind of a long section, I want to I read it. He, he, he explains some of the majesty of what Jesus endured, and how Jesus was this majestic king of kings, who became lowly, and how if you get that, if that becomes real to your heart, then, then you'll be able to admit that you're a sinner and live for his glory. Here's what Brooks says. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his Father to a region of sorrow and death, that God should be manifested in the flesh, the Creator made a creature, that he that was clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of flesh. He that filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger. 
that the power of God should fly from weak man, the God of Israel, into Egypt? Right, referring about Jesus and his family running away into Egypt. That the God of the law should be subject to the law? The God of the circumcision circumcised? The God that made the heavens working at Joseph's homely trade? That he that binds the devils in chains should be tempted? That he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst? That the God of strength should be weary? The judge of all flesh condemned? The God of life put to death? That he that is one with his father should cry out of misery, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That he that had the keys of hell and death at his girdle should lie imprisoned in the sepulcher of another? having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body? That the head, before which the angels do cast down their crowns, should be crowned with thorns? And those eyes, purer than the sun, put out by the darkness of death? Those ears which hear nothing but the hallelujahs of saints and angels to hear the blasphemies of the multitude? That face that was fairer than the sons of men to be spit on? That mouth and tongue that spake as never man spake, accused for blasphemy? Those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven, nailed to the cross? Those feet, like unto fine brass, nailed to the cross for man's sins? Each sense annoyed, his feeling or touching with a spear and nails, his smell with stinking flavor, being crucified about Golgotha, the place of skulls, his taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches, and sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken. Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against sin and work the soul to fly from it, to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed. Get that vision of Jesus in your head and in your heart. And instead of going, what do people think of me? You'll start to go, how can my life be a demonstration of God's grace. Even the weak moments of my life, even the sinful moments of my life, rather than having to pretend I'm something, I'll have the humility to say, I blew it. And I need this kind of grace that Jesus gives. It becomes a life of freedom. It becomes a path of joy. Otherwise, you hide and pretend And eventually, you may even stand before Jesus himself. And as he says in Matthew 7, you'll list off all the things you've done. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of evil. Now's the time to do business with God. Now's the time to cleanse your heart of the sin that you're hiding. Now's the time to get a vision of Christ sets you free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that I need it and that we need it. God, thank you for what it tells us about who you are and what it tells us about who we are. And God, my prayer is that we would see ourselves in truth. God, that those who are not truly converted and who have 
been living a double kind of life of hypocrisy, God, that they would see who they've been, that they wouldn't despair from it, but that they would, would turn to Christ in hope. And, and God, for those who are truly converted but have these tendencies towards hypocrisy, would you root those out of us, God? Would you give us the freedom that's found in the gospel? We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. So it's at a, a moment like this when you've had time to reflect as you've heard and, and as you've read the book of Romans and you've seen it kind of diagnose the problem that each of us has. It's, it's typical for people to have one of two responses. One of those responses is to hear all of that and become so self-focused that, yes, every word he said was about me. And to take all of that and just and meditate on how, just how bad you are. How hypocritical you are. And that what will happen is that will push you down even more. It will cause despair. And it will crush you. The other response is to distract yourself. And you've done it already. What's, what, what are we doing after? How much longer is this? Because you've, you, you know, yeah, I know that stuff was about me. But it's, maybe it's too painful to look at. So I'm going to push it away. Or maybe it's, it's something where I, I really don't believe all that about myself. Yeah, it seemed to stick, but it, it didn't really find a hook in my heart to really hang there. It's just kind of fallen off. And what that does is it leads to pride, it leads to further hypocrisy. But there's a third way, and it's the better way, and it's the way that we're going to do now that we do at every point um, in, the, in our services on the weekend, and it's to remember the cross. If you, if you felt the crushing weight of sin, even religious hypocrisy, God does not expect you to sit there and hold on to it and just and just just meditate on how awful you are. It's meant to drive you to Christ. It's meant to push you to the cross. It's meant to remind you that he was crushed for your iniquities, for your sins. That God treated him as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you lived his life. Having never sinned, having never spoken a sin, having never thought a sin, even especially never acted a sin. But you've never done anything wrong because Christ was punished for your life and you get treated as if you lived his that is a wonderful moment. That's why we sing at the end of the service because after this moment where we go to communion we take the bread and we're reminded of his death and we take the cup and we're reminded of his blood poured out for us. After that reminder that, I'm, I'm, that, that in Christ he's, he's made me whole, that in Christ he's, 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 he's turning this hypocrite into someone with integrity, that as that process is going through your life and as you remind yourself of the cross, you move from despair or you move from pride to joy. Joy not in yourself, but joy in the one, only one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so take some time right now. If you're a Christian, take some time. Meditate on the things that you've heard. And when you are ready, come up. There, there's a, on, in either corners, there's, there's a, the bread and the, and the cup and then in the back right there. But if you're not a Christian, we're not expecting you to be a hypocrite, to put on a show and pretend that you're something that you're not. Please sit there. Please, if, if anything if you've heard that has, has hit your heart, work with God. Talk to God. Do some work with him and see what he's going to say back to you. There's also giving boxes in the back. There'll be people up here to pray with you after we sing. But take a moment right now, reflect, and then come up and take communion.